I'm Saha Zand, and this is a Vespucci story. When the Taliban ruled Afghanistan, playing an instrument could be punished by death. But some nights, in a village in the province of Kuna, a man named Ajmal dared to bring out his setar and hum a quiet lullaby. Ajmal had always loved music, and the gentle strums of the instrument brought comfort to his pregnant wife. He wondered, how could something so beautiful be so dangerous? And although he didn't know it at the time, that question would haunt the life of his unborn daughter. They named her Negin, a word that means jewel in Dari. But her early life would never be so peaceful as her father's lullaby. The United States military has begun strikes. Almost 3,700 civilians were killed. When the United States invaded Afghanistan and the airstrikes began, the family fled their village to a refugee camp in Pakistan. Everything was left behind. Even the setar. But like a half-remembered song, Negin would recall the wooden instrument with its long neck and deep round bow while she gathered wood with the other children in the camp. She seemed to carry its music inside her. When the Taliban withdrew, the family returned to Kuna. But though the green mountainous landscape was familiar, everything else had changed. Their home had been destroyed. Negin's mother, Hashima, found the ruins specially hard to bear. Negin now had four younger brothers, and Hashima was constantly stretching food between the children. She loved her husband, but there were times she wished he'd be more practical and more traditional. Ajmal had always flouted convention. But with the scarce resources available, she felt it would be better if he played by the rules, like the other men in the village. Though his setar was long lost, Ajmal still liked to hum his lullaby. And in the midst of all this chaos, the young Negin found something steady in the music. Compared to her mother's anxiety, the melody soothed her. Music wasn't the only long-forbidden thing now finding expression in Ajmal and Hashima's house. The Taliban had outlawed the education of women, but Ajmal resolved to teach Negin everything he knew. By the time she was nine, Negin understood just how similar she was to her father, more daring than her brothers, less traditional than her mother. His lullaby seemed to hint at some other way of life. Though exactly what that might be, she didn't know. Ajmal began to fear that his daughter's potential would be limited in the village. It had no school for girls, 
and his wife's wish to ground the family in tradition prevailed amongst his neighbours as well. He'd never really fit in there, and neither would his increasingly unusual daughter. That's when he made the most difficult decision of his life. After their lessons one day, Ajmal brought Negin to a slope overlooking the lush Kunar Valley and broke the news. He would send her hundreds of miles away, entrusting his jewel to an orphanage in Kabul. He could hardly meet her brimming eyes as he explained how they'd feed her and clothe her and offer her a proper education. None of that mattered to the girl. Negin would be separated from her family for the very first time, alone in a strange and distant city, yet one more upheaval in a brief life full of changes. What would she do without them? Who would she be? Ajmal held his daughter's hand on the journey to Kabul. They found the orphanage behind an imposing metal gate all tangled with barbed wire. As they passed through the corridors of this new frightening place, Negin noticed other girls peeking out of doors to catch sight of the stranger. The orphanage provided a locker for her scant belongings, showed her to the bunk bed where she'd sleep, and then Ajmal was gone. At 10 years old, Negin was alone. That night, afraid in her bed in a room filled with girls, something strange happened. Out of nowhere, Negin began to hum. The melody was long familiar. Her father's lullaby. It had always been with her. From her mother's womb, through the refugee camp, through those hungry nights in the village. But it had a particular power tonight. In the shifting dark of the orphanage, she felt the music bringing comfort to the other girls, a mysterious calm falling over them. But there wasn't time to wonder what this power meant. Negin had fallen asleep. For three years, Negin lived at the orphanage. She began to feel at home with the other girls. They had a lot in common. They were often the first females in their families to be receiving a formal education, and many of them felt the contrast between themselves and the more traditional ways. In all these years, Negin hadn't been home. She knew she was making her father proud, but she often wondered what her mother would think of her now, if they even spoke the same language anymore. And then came the news. A music school was being formed and students at the orphanage were invited to audition. At first, the idea struck Negin as bizarre. She'd never seen a woman play an instrument. Besides her own voice, which occasionally broke those lonely nights, she'd hardly even heard women sing. But she felt that inner daring, her father's love of risk, and signed up to audition anyway. Music had the power to transport her. She wanted to see where else it could lead.
But what she didn't quite understand was the danger. Only when she was driven to the other side of Kabul and saw the school did she begin to realize that in Afghanistan, music was not a game. The building was protected by towering walls and guards draped with weapons. It was a target of the Taliban, and so was its founder and director, Dr. Ahmad Sarmast. Dr. Sarmast had put his life on the line for music in Afghanistan. Having lived in exile during the Taliban rule, he studied musicology in Moscow and ethnomusicology in Australia, and then returned to his native land to revive its musical heritage. He founded the National Institute of Music, which combined Afghan and Western traditions, believing that music could help the country heal the traumas of the Taliban rule and the endless wars on its frontiers. Several years after Negin's arrival at the institute, Dr. Sarmas would be injured in a suicide bombing during a performance and become partially deaf. But on this bright morning, he could hear all the busy music from his beloved institute. Negin was bewildered, as if she'd wandered into a forest of songbirds, countless clashing instruments pouring from the classrooms. But then, one particular sound caused her to stop. It came from a wooden instrument with a long neck and a deep round ball. It was the setar. Suddenly here, in this strange place, she knew she belonged. And then came the audition. She was called into Dr. Sarmast's office. She found herself plagued by anxiety. She'd never seen a woman perform music, and now she was being asked to do it herself. In a gentle voice, Dr. Sarmast invited her to sing. But for some reason, she said she didn't know any songs. Where did it come from, this fear? Her love of risk had never failed her before. Dr. Sarmast asked her to try the national anthem. Not meeting his eyes, she began mumbling the words. Then he sang along with her. And in the merging of their voices, she looked up at last and sang louder, clearer, bolder. When the audition was over, he offered some encouraging words, but she knew she'd failed. Where had all her daring gone? Maybe she wasn't her father's daughter after all. Maybe she didn't belong here. Weeks passed without news from the Institute. Sometimes Negin pictured herself playing the sitar, but the vision only brought a painful longing, as if she missed a home to which she could never return. She 
She hadn't seen her family for three long years, but with the Persian New Year approaching, she decided to undertake the journey home. Laughter and kisses greeted her there, and the reunion with her father was specially joyful. Ajmal was proud of all she'd learned and eager to show off her new baby sister, another jewel in the family's crown. Yet, as the days progressed, Negin began to feel something she'd never felt at home before. The house was filled with uncles, male cousins and brothers, all of whom seemed to monitor her every move, as if there was something suspicious about her, as if she were a stranger. And to Negin's surprise, her mother seemed to share the men's suspicions. Indeed, Hashima was always filled with nervous energy, shutting down all talks of Negin's life in Kabul, not curious about anything beyond the village. Her mother seemed gripped by something like Negin's anxiety during the audition, a paralyzing fear. It wasn't hard to understand where it came from. For Negin, music was the thing that had seen her through hardship and brought order to her life. But for her mother, that constant companion was tradition. Tradition had safeguarded her under the Taliban. Tradition had preserved her identity in the refugee camp and tradition had formed the foundation to rebuild her home in Kuna. The sudden appearance of her daughter as an independent woman threatened to undermine that order. Hashima had lived through airstrikes. She knew what happens when order breaks down. But as always, Ajmal understood. His daughter was testing the limit of what's possible, just as he dared to bring out his setar even when it was forbidden. He knew she could reach any goal she set for herself. That's why Negin couldn't bring herself to tell him about the audition, how she'd failed in the one thing that mattered the most to her. Despite her father's faith in her, there were still some limits she couldn't surpass. And then, the phone rang. It was the director of the orphanage. Nervously, Negin cradled the phone. And then, her face lit up. Somehow, the audition had been a success, She'd been accepted to the institute and would begin there the next term. Ajmal proudly declared his support for Negin's new path. But all Hashima could think about was what people in the village would say about a girl who played music. Negin would never find a husband. She would die poor. She would die alone. Now all those suffocating men added their thoughts as well. The uncles, the cousins, the brothers. They sided with Hashima. Negin never should have learned how to read and write in the first place, let alone learn to play an instrument. Her place was in the home. The only knowledge she needed was that which would allow her to succeed as a wife and a mother. To become an entertainer would dishonor the family. A grave crime, one that should be violently punished. Now, the visit that began in laughter ended in shouts and tears. Negin's little siblings put their hands over their ears. She returned to Kabul, determined to attend the institute. But she knew she was more alone than ever before, and embarking on a dangerous journey. 
three years passed with Negin immersed in the study of music. Her family's anger had helped her understand the gravity of what she'd undertaken at the institute. When she picked up an instrument, she wasn't only fulfilling her own dream. She was proving that the pursuit of music was an honorable life for an Afghan girl. Over the course of those years, her mother wouldn't speak to her. But Negin felt less and less alone. Through the institute, she learned English and began meeting musicians from all over the world. Now she felt connected to a tradition far larger than that of her village, a global tradition of music. As more teenage girls joined the school, Negin began displaying the qualities of a natural leader. Just like that first night at the orphanage, when she hummed a lullaby that soothed everybody's fears, something about her rallied the girls together. That's why, when the institute assembled an all-girl orchestra, she was the clear choice to be its conductor. Never before in Afghanistan had such a thing been attempted. An all-female orchestra. But the teenage girls became an immediate sensation. For the rest of the world, they symbolized just how far Afghanistan had come from the years of the Taliban. And that was a problem. The Taliban militia designated the group a target and Dr. Sarmast had to tighten security at the institute. But the most chilling messages came from the people Negin couldn't ignore. Hardly a day passed that Negin didn't receive abusive calls and messages from her own uncles, cousins and brothers. Soon, they escalated to death threats. Her family demanded she quit the orchestra. But she couldn't abandon the girls. It was as if, through their instruments, each girl was singing her own story of how she'd overcome the odds. And under Negin's graceful baton, all these individual triumphs came together in glorious harmony and sang of something much bigger than any of them. One day, Dr. Sarmas had a major announcement for the orchestra. The president of Afghanistan wanted to see them perform. The news thrilled Negin. Not only was it a big opportunity for the orchestra, it was a chance to show her father that his faith in her had been rewarded. The performance would be in six months, and Negin could hardly wait. But that surprise was soon topped by another. After three silent years, Negin's mother called. Negin expected Hashima to launch into another abusive tirade. After all, she'd kept receiving death threats from her family and Hashima had apparently done nothing to prevent them. But in fact, her mother's voice was choked with tears as she asked Negin's forgiveness. It was music to her ears. They might be completely different people now, but Negin had never wanted to be so estranged from her own mother. Perhaps news of the upcoming presidential performance had reached the village and shown everybody that even the highest levels of Afghan society believed in Negin's honor. Hashima asked if she'd consider coming home for a visit, so Negin requested a leave of absence from Dr. Sarmast. He did grant it, but with some reservations. 
Another girl from the orchestra had gone home to attend a wedding and never returned. But Negin had heard her mother's sobs. She knew everything would be all right. Out of the little salary she earned, Negin bought a headscarf for Hashima and a jacket for Ajmal. On the cold journey back to Kuna, she warmed herself with a fantasy of one day buying him a new setar and playing music together. Yet when she arrived home, her father was nowhere to be found. Standing there, the gifts in her arms, Negin saw a strange look enter her mother's eyes. A sudden fear ran through her. But before she could react, the men were upon her, the men who'd been hounding her for years. Negin screamed and pleaded as they dragged her into a room, beat her and locked her inside. Six months passed. Six months shut in a room, watching the little tree beyond the window. Her only consolation came from the music she dared to whisper. In her mind, she transformed the flowers on the rug into instruments and plucked them in despair, all the while wondering where her father had gone. Ajmal had always stood up to the family. Why had he abandoned her now? He must have finally given in to tradition tired of taking risks all the time. Negin was a disgrace even to the one who'd first believed in her. Hashima tried coaxing her daughter out of her depression. There was good news, she said. A selfless man, decades older than Negin, would accept her as a second wife. Not every woman in Negin's fallen position had been given a chance to regain her honour. But Negin just stared back, silent and numb. Mother and daughter were total strangers. There was nothing to say anymore. Now came the dead of winter. Negin prayed for an airstrike. Let the jet destroy the house. Let her be buried in rubble. She looked out at the tree. It was naked and black until one day there was life beneath it. A man was chasing her younger siblings around, everyone laughing as they played. He glanced up at the window. Their eyes met. It was Ajmal. He looked confused. Why wasn't his jewel in Kabul? And then the meaning of his daughter's wasted face set in. Rushing to the door, he found it locked. His confusion turned to rage. He began shouting, demanding the door to be opened. Hashima approached, hands trembling, she gave him the key. She'd never seen her husband like this. As soon as he ripped the door open, he seized Negin's hand. He could feel how weak she'd become. But they had to move quickly. Once Negin's uncles heard of their escape, they'd come after her, and merely imprisoning her wouldn't be enough. As father and daughter fled the village, it was clear they would never return. Later, Negin would learn why her father hadn't come for her before. Her success had imposed a great price on him. Jobs were scarce in the region, and as the father of a disgraced daughter, Ajmal had to look for work further and further away. 
He'd finally found employment in Tajikistan and Hashima had taken advantage of his absence to lure Negin home and try to convert her back into the old ways. But now, fleeing the village, father and daughter didn't say a word. With just a small bribe, Negin's uncles could persuade the police to bring them back. Ajmal and Negin paid a friend to drive them part of the way. Their heart beats loud every time they pass the checkpoint. Then they walked and hitchhiked and rode on donkeys. A journey of almost 24 hours before at last arriving safely at the Music Institute. Dr. Sarmast had come to fear the worst. Over the months of her imprisonment, he'd been calling Hashima, who claimed not to know where her daughter was. Now, he was overjoyed to see his star pupil return, but also concerned. The concert in the presidential palace was just two days away. Negin said she couldn't possibly perform. She hadn't held a baton for six months, playing nothing more than imaginary instruments in her mind. But Dr. Sarmast insisted. Just look at all she'd endured. She couldn't give up now. She had to be like her father. She had to take a risk. All through the snowy mountains, as the bus brought them to the presidential palace, the girls of the orchestra sang. But Negin, the conductor, sat silent and apart. She was thinking of her father. After their escape, Ajmal had left her at the institute, vague about where he'd go next. He couldn't return to the village, but had nowhere else to stay in Kabul. And there wasn't enough money for him to travel with the orchestra and share this moment. He'd given up everything for songs he wouldn't hear. As the girls tuned their instruments beneath the crystal chandeliers, and as Negin thumbed the paper of the musical score, nobody yet knew just what this moment would mean. For now, all Negin knew was that she felt alone, the palace as solitary as her prison in Kuna. There were times it seemed like her father's lullaby had been both a gift and a curse. Music might have given a direction to her life, but it had also taken so much. Where was it leading? What was it all for? The president arrived. The girls stood up, stiff and nervous. They looked to their conductor for guidance. And in their eyes, Negin found the answers to her questions. After all these years, she'd come to know how even a simple melody can change a life. Every member of the orchestra had been similarly transformed. All the traumas their country had endured, all the obstacles that overcome, all the dangers they still faced. None of them would be there had they not been changed by music. Negin sensed their mission was to invite others to take the risk with her and let the music carry them away. Nobody knew that after the breakthrough success of this performance, the president would give Ajmal a job at the palace. The money he would earn would allow everyone to live together. Ajmal and Hashima, Negin and her siblings, in a house in Kabul. 
Suddenly freed from a life of scarcity in the village, Hashima would begin to feel secure enough to accept her daughter. She discovered that tradition could coexist with Negin's unconventional life. And as Negin's fame grew beyond Afghanistan, Hashima would begin referring to her not as her jaw, but as her international superstar. She tapped her baton. The room fell silent. And then it began. This story is part of Paperless, an audio magazine from Vespucci.